0: Hi, it's Maria here and welcome to episode seven of Talking With Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. If you visit Sydney's Art Gallery of New South Wales in the next few weeks, you will see a collection of portraits of some of Australia's most talented artists. Included in the paintings is one simply called Deng, which is of refugee lawyer Deng Adut. My guest today is the creator of that painting, Nick Stathopoulos. Nick has been a finalist many times in Australia's Archibald and Doug Moran Portrait Prizes. And last year, his painting of writer Robert Hogue was shortlisted in the renowned International BP Portrait Prize in London, which attracted over 400,000 visitors. His career spans many fields, including illustration, book cover and computer game illustration, animation, screenwriting, filmmaking, sculpture, and this is all on top of completing an arts law degree after leaving school. He's won various awards for his illustration work but has found a real passion in hyper-realist painting of portraits and still lifes. In this interview, Nick talks about how children's television of the 60s provided him with the inspiration to draw TV characters, toys, cars and machines as a child. He explains why he can never eat another Freddo frog and how he came to name his 2009 show Toy Porn. He openly discusses his art techniques in detail from the first sketches and meeting with the sitter to the final portrait. He also gives moving accounts of how he came to paint Dengadut and Robert Hogue and the emotional impact those experiences have had on him and his sitters. Images of all the paintings we discuss are on the website talkingwithpainters.com. I started by asking Nick about his earliest memories of drawing.
1: I remember sitting in front of the TV set drawing. I was always in front of the TV set drawing while my favorite shows were on. I would be watching old Astro Boy Mm. and all the Gerry Anderson stuff, you know, Stingray and Supercar in progression so supercar was first and then i'd watch fireball xl5 and then stingray and eventually it turned into thunderbirds so. but um the very early japanese cartoons that came to us via america so we had astro boy and speed racer and gigantor and prince planet and all that kind of stuff and you know i, I think that's what fostered my love of science fiction and fantasy what's interesting about the Jerry Anderson shows, the old puppet shows, is the fact that you were looking at basically toys that were alive. And, and also there are lots of special effects. So there are like rockets and, you know, underwater vehicles mm. and just interesting environments.
0: So when you're drawing in front of the TV, yeah, yeah. were you trying to draw those Well,
1: I was always, yeah, And I think when you draw them, you kind of make them... Your, you, you wanted them. By drawing them, you made them your own. So I kind of like the psychology behind that. Somehow it becomes your own once you've drawn it. You know, I was so desperate for a colour TV. My parents couldn't afford a colour TV. Um, There were a lot of competitions at the time when colour TV first started uh, to win a colour TV. There were colouring competitions. Mm. So I was so desperate for one. I entered all these colouring competitions. (laughs) And uh, I won a colour TV. And uh, so we were the first on the block, and then about two or three weeks later, we won a second. <laughs> I, won, I won a second colour TV. So not only were the the first on the block with a colour TV, but we had two within weeks of each other. I remember oh, all my friends. My friends came over, and the first film we watched together was Barbarella. You know, it was just so lurid.
0: Yes, I remember colour TV coming in too, and it was just amazing. Just
1: striking. Yeah. You know?
0: We're sitting in your living room now and I'm looking around and there are just an amazing number of, you know, figurines and toys from those sort of Mm -hmm. figures from those days. Mm -hmm. When did you start collecting those sort of toys?
1: Uh, I remember um, every Christmas or my birthday I would get a dinky toy of something that I loved. So that would be... I remember the one I lusted after the most was uh, a Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. This is nineteen sixty seven when the film came out.
0: What's a dinky toy? Uh,
1: it was a company, an English company. They would make these beautiful recreations of, you know, toys from these films and television shows. And I just loved them. I've still got them all in their boxes. And they become subjects for paintings yeah. ultimately. But yeah. they were the things that I have just you know, they were to me they were more precious than gold.
0: Okay, so back at high school you did art, I presume? No. What?
1: And I was winning art competitions at the time, and I didn't do art at high school. Yeah.
0: So, all right. So what were you doing at that point? Were you painting at that point?
1: I was working on doing my own stuff, yeah. And then like I said, entering art competitions. and I became quite addicted to it because um, it started with... Entering art competitions or on TV, you'd win a box of Fredo frogs or something. I won so many Fredo frogs that I've never been able to eat one since. (laughs) But uh, I was a voracious reader. Mm. And it's funny because when I was really, really young, I think they said that my reading was a little bit behind when I was about six or seven. And my mum started buying um, these books called How and Why Wonder Books.
0: Oh yeah, and
1: they were all on different subjects. So they'll be on butterflies, or on underwater exploration, deep sea exploration, or on um, dinosaurs, mm. or and they were all different, different subjects. And I would read these over and over and over again, and they gave me this amazing um, general knowledge, and I started reading. Whatever came along, I loved a lot of science fiction, lots of fantasy. I was reading everything from Heinlein and Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke, and and not just that, but also, you know, Jacob Bronowski's *The Ascent of Man* or um, Sir Kenneth Clark's *Civilization*. Okay, this is where it gets interesting. So I'm watching TV. I must have been about fourteen at this stage, and the ABC starts running this show called "Romantic Art versus Classic Art" by Sir Kenneth Clark. Yeah, and uh, there was one episode. Uh, the whole episode was about an artist called Jean Auguste Dominique Ingres, I N G R E S, but Kenneth Clark pronounced it Angre like that. So, and that really blew my mind this guy like wow his paintings were unbelievably realistic Mm. stylized right but there was a naturalism and he Mm. he was painting at the time of napoleon in fact he actually did portraits of napoleon what i couldn't understand was how he painted with that level of realism and
0: so it intrigued you?
1: I, I, I just fell in love with his work mm. because I loved the detail. And so, Were you
0: painting at that point?
1: I was starting to paint and starting to experiment. And what,
0: with acrylic or...? Uh,
1: they were acrylics. No, they were those really cheap school paints.
0: Yeah, right. Which
1: have no body yeah, and really yeah, hard yeah. to work with. Yep. And uh, drawing and trying to draw like Angre. I could never do it unless I photographed the image and or photocopied the image mm-hmm. and traced off the photo, photocopy mm-hmm. and then I could achieve something that looked like his silver point. Drawings. So when
0: you say uh, traced just the outline and the yeah. f- main features and then you would go back yeah, and, and then start I'd render it and render rendering it. it.
1: And for a long time no matter how and I thought partly was it was because, you know, I, I, I just wasn't good enough. But I came to the conclusion that, th- well, the only way I could achieve that process, that that same result was to use, t- to trace. And uh, I started going back and looking at the use of the camera obscura. And I came across a piece of um, primary ma- historical material Uh, It was a letter by a woman that had visited Angre's studio. And she says in the letter, Oh, I'm so excited. I finally got a chance to have my portrait done by Mr. Angre. And she said, What was amazing was that he would go into another room. And then he would come out and there was this beautiful drawing. And what was even more amazing was it was backwards. Well, (laughs) bang. Yeah. I just went, he's using a camera obscura. Yes. And... Which is, a,
0: can you briefly explain okay, what that
1: is? Camera Obscura, is, it's basically using lenses positioned in such a way that you can it bounces the light back. It's like a, an early camera, but it's, it hasn't got the actual capacity to record the image. Mm-hmm. But it would beam the image onto roughly the size of an A4 piece of paper. And that's why his drawings were always... There was no hesitation... Right, so anyone drawing from life, you get the lines aren't absolutely perfect straight off. Yeah. His lines were absolutely yeah. perfect straight off, yeah. and that was the only way that I thought you could do it. You, you could do it, and that just reinforced my opinion. It wasn't until um, David Hockney mm. put out the book the *Secret Knowledge*. Mm-hmm. You know, I read that, and I'm going, "Yep." So yep. you had
0: already yep. sort of thought that. worked
1: that. I worked yeah. this out when I was in my twenties. So this was all part of me trying to find my way in the mm. art world, right? So and and also trying to make a living out of it too. Mm. How do you make a living out of it? Because you know, going to an art school was not.
0: So what did you do after high school?
1: Well, I got into law, I got into university and I, I studied law and I did uh, an arts law degree. But in between my, you know, during my holidays, I was starting to work for publishers. So I was doing book covers and doing illustrations okay. and also starting to how, do...
0: How did you get into that?
1: Oh, I just banged on drawers hard enough until they kind of...
0: So, what, 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 what were you, so you were painting sort of science fiction type covers?
1: Uh, I started, okay, this goes back to when I was in high school, I started doing illustrations for um, fanzines that were coming out of Sydney University. Mm. Very crude stuff, you know, very, very immature work. And I was starting so were they
0: to like do, cartoons or something
1: uh, or just, they would act just act I would just sit and draw so mm. there would be science fiction spaceships and mm. rockets and monsters and mm. so uh, uh, and they started getting printed and then uh, the mm. the fanzines became more elaborate they became chat books and I was doing illustrations for those and they were black and white paintings It evolved into black and white paintings and also so was, on,
0: would you do that on paper yeah, yeah. and
1: illustration board mm and they become more elaborate and uh
0: and they're all from your imagination totally or yeah
1: that stuff yes and then um i started you know doing basically fan art so what is that it's it's you paint your idols so i would be painting characters from star wars or from superman or from star trek and these would be shown you know at conventions science fiction conventions Mm. so
0: ask you why did you not study in that area since that's what you were doing
1: there was nowhere to study in that area oh right if there was like there is now right right? but at the time i would the only way i could find out about how did they make the masks in star wars i wanted to make characters like that and i did make rubber monsters but at the time you know
0: well, in Australia, there wouldn't have been anything like that. There was I nothing. Have thought. Nothing. No. no so, way. did you feel as though you were in a very small world in that? I respect? was in a
1: vacuum, definitely. <laughs> uh, but what's interesting is I found, you know, my best friends to this day were people that were doing the same. They were doing the same stuff at the same age. And I finished uni, and I'm at the College of Law. And that uni was great. I enjoyed uni. The College of Law was awful. But anyway, while I was at the College of Law there was a guy called Mike Bowles. Mike was design engineer for Industrial Light and Magic who did the special effects for Star Wars. Mm. And I knew he was somewhere in town. And while I was at the College of Law, I went, right, as soon as this is over, I'm going to go try and find Mike. So my last day at the College of Law, they misspelled my name on my certificate and I have to go back and get it re-inscribed. So all the other students have gone to the local pub to celebrate and I had to get this official document re-inscribed mm. and as I'm walking out coming up the other way on the sidewalk is Mike Bowles and Mike goes Nick and I go Mike and he goes oh oh here I'm in a business suit he goes what's all of this I said I've just finished at the College of Law he goes oh does this mean you won't be painting anymore and I know it. No, quite the opposite. And he goes, good, I need a mad artist. When can you start?" it? This was Friday. Monday I was there working.
0: Oh, my God. So if it wasn't for that misspelling, yeah. you wouldn't have got that job. Yeah. And so how, how did you uh, come to your first solo exhibition?
1: Okay, well, I would had a, a small show in a gallery on King Street in Newtown um, called the Mira Clay Gallery. And uh, I bumped into Nicky Ginsberg. She started a gallery called NG Art in Chippendale. Mm-hmm. Chippendale subsequently has become a bit of an arts precinct. She invited me into a group show, and it was all about f- food. Um, I did this kind of... St- it was a still-life painting, mm-hmm. but it was food, but not as we know it. So it okay. was like fake foods. So that instead of a, a, a lemon, there was a bottle of that lemon squeeze... And instead oh, of a pineapple, I squared off the pineapple. So it was a square pineapple. And it was like genetically modified food, but right. it was still food.
0: And, and sort of very realistic.
1: A very, very hyper real. Anyway, that painting sold. I t- I, we hadn't even worked out a price. I'd taken it upstairs. Someone went, <laughs> who painted this? And they, they bought it straight away. Wow. Right, It didn't even hit the walls. Right, So Nikki then offered me a one-man show. What do I paint? And a friend of mine, my friend Marilyn, said, "Paint what you love." So I thought, right, I'll paint my toys. So there were Astro Boys and Tin Tins and all my old Corky toys and Dinky toys and all the boxes still in yeah. their boxes and 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 the plastic surfaces are so yeah. beautiful to paint. And I paint them, you know. It, my my technique is a dry brush technique. Mm-hmm. So I grind the paint into the surface, and it looks like airbrush. And my technique. Is just perfect for these objects, yes. for these toys.
0: So, yeah. so there's, there were three hmm. um, uh, shows for toy the poons. toys. They're called toy porn.
1: Don't Google toy porn. <laughs> Do not Google toy porn. Uh, I remember we we're trying to come up with a, t- a title, and I was, oh, we we're going to call it playtime or toy box, or and none of them really worked. And my friend Lewis, my oldest friend, actually. Uh, I was talking to him on the phone. I said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm looking at uh, hardware porn. I went, what's that? And he goes, oh, I'm looking through a No, he said, I'm looking at toy porn. And I went, what's that? And he goes, well, you know what hardware porn is? And I'm going, no, what's that? <laughs> and he goes, well, you know when tradies go through catalogs of, you know, yeah. power tools and yeah, stuff. Yeah. Well, I'm looking at a catalog of toys. Yeah. And I went, that's a great title. So yeah, I went yeah. back to Nikki and I said, look, can we, have we got time to change the title? And she went, yeah, what do you want to call it? And I said, oh, I want to call it Toy Porn. And she looked at me like her face was, like, just, oh, she was horrified. But her young assistant jumped up and she was punching the air going, yes, yes. Yeah. And Nikki just went, okay. And, and, and it was consciously chosen to get media attention. Yeah. And it worked. So the toys were painted like still lives So the the painting I had done of all the weird fruit, the fake the fake food, done like a still a, a classic still life, mm. um, informed the look of the toy porn shows. Yeah. So that they're all painted on you know, a tabletop, and they look like still lives, and they they are the objects, but sometimes they're arranged in such a way that they look like traditional still lives. OK, this is where it's starting to evolve into what I do with my portraiture, where I would focus on the object... Like, say, it's an Astro Boy, so it would start to be just the Astro Boy closer up, so you weren't actually seeing the surface of the table anymore, and there will be a flat background, and all the attention was on the detail on the toy. There are two that I did that I spent... There were experiments to see just how far can I push the realism. And one was a painting of a yellow submarine in its box. Mm -hmm. And then there was another one of Robbie the robot as if he had just stepped off the box. And those two paintings took me as long as the entire rest of the show took to paint. And it gets to a point where if they look too much like a photo, you lose something. Right, so you don't get the satisfaction you do from a, as you would from a painting. So mm. there's a point where I thought, right, they looked fantastic, but I think I have to back off a bit.
0: So you could have pushed it to the point where it would have been even more yes. so. Yes. So you have to decide where yes. that cut-off point yep. is.
1: Yeah, I can paint them to the point where you cannot determine whether it is a photograph or whether... You could put the photo right next to it, and you would not be able to tell. But and that becomes pointless.
0: Yeah, and would that and is that achieved by layering? Like, would that be another layer you on top? You just keep
1: building and yeah. building and yeah. building, and working okay. on it and working on it, and mm. you start. And, and this is where, okay, we can talk a bit, bit about technique now because at Hanna Barbera I learnt that you start off with a silhouette, right? So I see people painting, and they would do a very elaborate drawing. And then they paint over the top of it. And what's the point of that? Because you lose the drawing. Mm. So I start off with the silhouette of the object. Well, I paint the background. Mm-hmm. And then I put the silhouette of the object. Mm-hmm. And then I trace the first layer of detail on. And then I paint those. And then you just keep tracing the next layer of detail on. The next. When layer you say
0: trace the layer of detail, what do you mean by that? I
1: create a layout. Sometimes it's a drawing, sometimes it's the photograph that's been enlarged right to a working size. Mm -hmm. I used to project, I used to draw them first and then, you know, grid them up and do all of that. Mm -hmm. And it becomes, you know, you you try and shortcut the process because I want to spend the time painting Um, rather than drawing. And, And I would work it out beforehand so it's not just... I'm not slavishly working... From a photograph, I would create the backgrounds, work out what what the lighting is, do all the hard grunt work first, so that I'm free to do all the mechanical stuff um, without having to try and resolve the painting as I'm going. But that's specifically for this style of painting. Um, If it's something else, like the portraits, I'm freer with the portraits. I don't. I'm not that obsessed. But I could have, at some point. I um I stop looking at the photograph and I just look at the painting and the painting tells you what it needs. Mm. So I would kick the lighting up or change the lighting. Because I have a 3D image of it in my head, mm. I can do that. I can relight it or throw shadows a different way.
0: Actually, at this point, can, we, can you clarify something for me? Mm. Would you call this style of painting, photorealism or hyperrealism?
1: I call it hyperreal because when you look at that real object, it kind of doesn't really look like the way I've painted it. And I think Deng is a classic. Mm. Deng is the subject of this year's Archibald painting. Actually, you know, let's
0: move on to that. Let's yeah. let's talk about that yeah. first. I, I, I'll just introduce that by just pointing out that this is the fifth time you've been hung as a finalist in the Archibald yep. Prize. Mm-hmm. And this year it is um, a painting of Deng Adut. Yeah. Before we start talking about the painting, can we talk about how uh, you came about painting this this portrait?
1: We came back from England. We had travelled over for the British Portrait Prize and we are watching the last episode of Transfer for the year. Mm -hmm. And they ran a little film that was made for Western Sydney University featuring Deng. And it was incredibly moving. It's a very powerful mm, I've little film. I've seen it too, yeah. So, I'll put a link um, to that on the website. Yeah, put a link to that because... It's mm, um, amazing. And at the end of the short, I was just sitting there, moved to tears. I was just like, mm. oh, my God, oh, my God.
0: So can you just briefly explain okay, his Dan, story?
1: Yeah, the film basically documents how he's taken from his mother as a child. He's turned into a child soldier in South Sudan. He's Sudanese and um, he gets shot. In fact, he was shot four times. The UN get him out of the country. He ends up in Western Sydney. He teaches himself to read at 15. He lives out of his car when he's putting himself through university. Mm. He's currently a lawyer in Blacktown. Mm. And so I'm sitting there just moved. And he taught me... I I got to know Deng pretty well, and uh, some of the stories are quite harrowing. Mm. But anyway... uh,
0: How did you get to meet him?
1: So, well, my partner, Adrian, just turned to me while I was watching this, after this clip, and he just went... He just punched me on the shoulder and went, Archibald? And I went, oh, do you think? And he's like, yes, and... I just went, oh, someone's got him for sure. And Adrian immediately Googled, found where his office was. The next morning we sent an email with some images. I said, this is what I do. If you're free, I don't know if you know about the eligible prize, but I'd love to paint you. And that afternoon I got an email back saying yes. I was so excited. I I can't begin to tell you how thrilled I was. You know, so I went out and I spent some time with him. He was running late the day I was meant to see him uh, because he was in court. Um, and we talked law mainly, the kind of cases that he's running and all that kind of stuff, and he consented to a portrait, and uh, the long process began. I, I went out there with a whole bunch of sketches. I had compositions in mind, and I, I, I tend to be very open-minded at this stage, so we took lots of... While we were talking, i just take lots of photos of Ding. just... I call it head mapping where I'll work out the architecture of his head. So it doesn't matter where, how he's photographed. I photograph him from every angle, in every light, every lighting position. At the end, it was like about four o'clock in the afternoon, there was this beautiful light coming, streaming, western light. You know, it was a golden hour. And I said, can we just go outside and take some photos in the the light? And uh, there was this amazing light bouncing back off the door. And it was this green, this aqua colour. And so on one one side he had sunlight and on the other side he had this beautiful green light, edge lighting him. Mm. I would never in a million years have kind of chosen that colour. So with
0: your sketches, your compositional sketches, are they just like a basic shape of a head in a square?
1: Yeah, they're tiny little thumbnails. You get a better sense of composition when they're tiny. So I don't work it out precisely in a big scale at that stage. I don't need to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I find the images that fit best. And, again, it's not one photo that I'm using when I'm working on the final painting. It's a combination of photos.
0: What to, So that you can get a sense of the different angles yeah. and what's happening yeah. on the other side. And, and I do need thing. the
1: real person. So every now and then I go, ding. I need to find out. I actually make a little list, so when he comes out, I go right. I've got to figure out what this eye is doing, what this yep. ear is doing. Yeah,
0: because the photo's not giving you that information.
1: No. Okay, well, what I do with the with the canvas, Deng was painted on Italian linen. Um, I spent about a week, nearly two weeks, surfacing that. Wow. So it's filled in with uh, undercoat and whiting. So undercoat, yeah, undercoat and whiting. It's just like whiting? it's like like plaster. You mix it in, okay. Right, so it makes it gives it a little bit of body, mm-hmm. and then that's trailed on, and then sanded back, and then trailed on, and then sanded back, and then trailed on and sanded back, so that there's no weave left on the surface, and you and it's sanded, and you get that beautiful kind of eggshell finish,
0: mm. and
1: it's really lovely. And what smooth. do you sand it with? Sandpaper.
0: <laughs> yeah, but do you sand it with a, just by hand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you sand it by hand. Yeah. That must be quite laborious.
1: It takes two weeks.
0: Gosh, that's quite time-consuming. Yeah, I know,
1: it's insane.
0: Is it boring?
1: Yes. <laughs> but, see, I listen to music when mm-hmm. I'm working, so mm-hmm. when you're doing that kind of, when it's mechanical, that kind of stuff, you listen mm-hmm. to something that's got a bit of punch, so it's Conan the Barbarian or <laughs> something with a bit of, you know,
0: <laughs> So okay, boom, so boom, now boom, 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 you've got boom, a boom
1: boom, boom 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 and you're just sanding all <laughs> over this.
0: So you get this so it's quite a smooth mm, surface mm-hmm, and mm. you need that to do what you're doing. Yeah. Because you don't want any weave interrupting no. anything.
1: Mm, no. And it's it can be problematic. I don't want, you know, an eyeball to be wiggly over no. the texture of the weave. You know, I start off with it's underpainted in acrylic and once I've worked out the location of the nose and the eyes and the structure of the ear you know you can start painting in and you just look at random photos then and kind of you know the structure so I'll look at 3D images of his ear I know what the structure is and also you I correct for any aberrations from the lenses so before I start working with the photos, they are lens corrected so that you don't get any distortion from the lenses.
0: How do you do that? What's lens corrected mean?
1: So you put them into Photoshop and you find there's a distort function hmm. and you find the lens distortion and I will work back. I know what distortion I get from the different points. So you know, are yeah. right.
0: I, I agree with you, it is not just copying a photo. No. What What is it about your technique that is not just copying
1: a photo? Mm. So um, I think because... I think what happens is uh, people mistake realism for photographicness. And I think my paintings are realistic. But if you look at the real Ding, he's very dark and his light bounces off him very differently. And I wanted to see all of those scars and all of that. So mm-hmm. on none of the photos, you know of him normally mm. can you see this stuff uh, when it comes to painting the eyes I paint them always from life uh, I needed to work out a structural thing with his ear, painted from life the sweat on his nose on the date, painted from life his eyelashes, he goes, I have tiny eyelashes, each hair was like, there's one, painted in there's one, painted in mm. there's one, painted in painted from life, right and I distort the head in ways that there are slight exaggerations, so it's stylized, but very gently stylized, mm. and in such a way that, you know, it makes it a more interesting shape. Mm. So I play around with composition. This is really subtle, mm. delicate, mm. nuanced work, and I, you know, I want to see all the scars. The lighting is totally fake. What do you mean by that? I've totally invented, apart from that fantastic green colour that was. But, you know, I wanted to see all of the detail. I wanted to see all those scars. I wanted to see see him.
0: Yeah. So so in order to bring out those features, you have to, in a way, invent that lighting. It's
1: totally fiction. Mm -hmm. You know, so you make those decisions, creative decisions, as you're working on it. And believe me, I had a lot of time to think about it as I was working on this.
0: How long did it take you? It took me
1: four and a half months.
0: That's incredible.
1: The way the paintings are evolving now, the last three or four uh, have got fairly neutral backgrounds, flat backgrounds, with a focus on the head, and the clothing is now flattening out. Mm. And that's what they liked about the portrait of Robert Hogue in the British Portrait Prize. They said, well, you know, a lot of people can do the hyper-real stuff, but what we liked was the fact that you intentionally left these areas flat. My partner, Adrian, was the one saying, leave them
0: flat, leave them flat. Actually, can we talk about that? I, I would yeah, like to talk about okay. that painting. I'll just preface it by saying I was astonished that that did not make it as a finalist in the Archibald Prize. Uh, it's inexplicable to me. Yep. I saw it at the Cylinder, if you say it won the People's yes, choices that was that's correct. Could you talk a little bit about... Robert, okay. and, um, I...
1: Robert was born with a, a, a tumour in the middle of his head and uh, his mother was on, went on antidepressants before she knew she was pregnant and she stopped as soon as she found out she was pregnant but it was too late and Robert was born with these terrible deformities and he had many operations over his lifetime and I knew him peripherally as a fan at science fiction conventions. I'd wanted to paint Robert for a long time but I didn't want him to put I didn't want to put him through the media circus and then he had a, a book coming out a, a, a memoir and he was also on Australian story and once the Australian stories hit Adrian said to me get in touch with Robert now other people will want to paint him and if not you who else and Robert consented immediately yeah. when it didn't get in I just went, oh, my God, I've put myself and Robert through all of this for nothing, you know, because Mm. it was a very big ask for Robert to consent to the portrait. Of course. And when it didn't get in, I really felt like I'd failed him. Mm. I was really, really upset. In fact, and what's very interesting, people, you know, you do these portraits and no one likes their own portrait. Robert, when he saw it, even though he had sat for it, he was in this room here, sitting for the painting. It's not until afterwards I realised he actually never really looked at the painting. Mm. And when he came in for the final sitting, the final viewing, he sat there just staring at the painting for about two minutes and he was horrified. Oh. Because here he is seeing all of it magnified yeah. at immense proportions.
0: Yeah.
1: And... It was very confronting to him, and I was—I just thought, "What have I done? Mm. What have I done?" You know, and it really made me doubt why, you know, the reasons why I painted it in the first place. Every night we would be reading while I was working on the painting. We'd be in bed, and I would be reading the memoir out. And one night I read a, the story about how um, he had an operation that involved reconstructing his nose and he had some wooden splints put in and uh, the nose had healed over the splints mm. so to take them out was horrendous and he was oh. screaming with pain to take them out and his father was there and his mother couldn't stand it she had to leave the room and Robert was screaming as they were removing these splints oh. Anyway, the next day I was painting his nose and I just, at one point, I just put the palette down and sobbed for 20 minutes. Even Mm. now, I just, I just really, it was really distressing. So Mm. it was, it took an emotional toll Mm. on both of us, I think. And that's why I'm really angry that it didn't get in.
0: Yeah. And... It must have been received really well in London, I take it.
1: So 400,000 people saw it in London. It made the cover of the Times.
0: Um, It's an an amazing painting. And where where is it now? Do you have it?
1: It's come back. So it's back home now. It's actually on display at number one Martin Place.
0: There's also something in the size of it, I think, too.
1: Okay. Size is really interesting because... I think there's a scale, when they get too big, they do look monstrous. They still have to be vaguely on a human scale. That is, those paintings, the last couple of paintings, they all in fact, all of my Archibald paintings are going to be that format, that size. It's going to be my Archibald thing. They're all going to be that size, done this, that... Because I see them as a single body of work. So all the paintings are part of this continuum. Mm. And you can see their evolution. I like that, to see that evolution in the, in the work.
0: Well, Nick, thanks so much for your time. I've been I've been so interested in um, hyperrealism for a while now, and I've been it's actually a pleasure to meet you and talk about that. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, well, there's a mystery to it. There's
0: a mystery, a and mystery it's to and, it. and it's so and a
1: misrepresentation inter- of it too.
0: I agree with that, and that's why I wanted to talk about yeah. that today because. There's so much more to it than people think.
1: No, people forget how yeah. they see it. And because it looks vaguely photographic or realistic, they think it's easy. That's it's, right. It's,
0: it's the probably complete one, opposite. Exactly right. It's the complete opposite. And, and I think you've really explained that today and I really appreciate that. And so good luck with your painting. Oh, thank you. And, no, it's been, um, real,
1: it's been real joy.
0: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nick as much as I did. Nick is working on portrait commissions at the moment and he's included in a group show at Wagner Gallery um, in November and I've put details of that on the website. I've also posted links to the University of Western Sydney and Australian story videos we talked about. And if you don't already, why not follow Talking With Painters on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram? Hope you can tune in next time for the next episode of Talking With Painters. Thanks for listening.